It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. When I did Media Buzz yesterday, there were just a couple of mentions of Donald Trump. One, because nothing particularly dramatic had happened. And two, because I just had so many other things I needed to get to. And so, you know, you go afterwards and you see what people are saying on Twitter, Facebook, etc. And somebody wrote in, oh, you're obsessed with Trump. <laughs> we barely mentioned the guy. And that will not be the case on today's podcast, just in case you were wondering. Uh, you know, I also get this feedback. It's like, well, I like your show, but it's pretty clear you lean right. And then I get, well, I like your show, but it's pretty clear you lean left, or I hate your show and fill in the blank. Uh, which is it, people? Obviously, to some degree, the way that people think I allegedly, supposedly lean, as opposed to just being a journalist, trying to be fair to all sides, um, depends on their own strong points of view. It's like, oh, you lean right, and it turns out the person is a flaming liberal, or somebody who says I lean left and thinks that, you know, Donald Trump should be behind bars, whatever, you name it. Um also on the program, and by the way, hope you had a good weekend. Thanks for checking us here on the Monday edition. Also on the program, and this is a direct result of the press, absolute direct result, because early last week, there was a New York Times story saying Joe Biden is not holding any rallies, which was obviously quite apparent, but it went into the reasons why, and Ron Klain, the chief of staff, went on CNN just before the weekend and said, uh, well, you know, rallies don't really work. It didn't work for uh, Obama in his first midterm. It didn't work for Trump in his first midterm. And that's actually true. Uh, and therefore, you know, we're trying a different approach. And then I suddenly see over the weekend, Joe Biden will appear at a rally, a DNC rally, not a rally for any particular candidate. Uh, I believe it's Tuesday in Florida. So, the talking point, because I think, you know, maybe they were afraid of not drawing a big crowd or whatever, uh, that rallies didn't matter, kind of evaporated because they didn't like the media narrative. And so, hey, here's a rally and we'll see how that goes. Another big topic on the show was Kanye West. And it was interesting because uh, my conservative guest, my liberal guest, were both kind of saying the same thing, but in different ways. Gail Trotter said that we just shouldn't cover Kanye and his anti-Semitic rants because, you know, why should we give it any airtime? Why should we give it any oxygen? Richard Fowler said, you know, Kanye is really manipulating the media because everybody's covering him for clicks and ratings. And that's wrong. Which is two different ways, I think, of saying the same thing. My counter to that is, how do you not cover one of the most famous people's, uh, people on the planet, a guy who is buying Parler? And by the way, it's not a complete coincidence that Parler is the social media app he's reached this deal to buy because one of his Kanye's biggest defenders, the man now known as Ye, uh, is Candace Owens, a fellow black conservative. And it just so happens, that coincidence, I suppose, that Candace Owens is married to the CEO of Parler, George Farmer. 
just a little tidbit for you there. All right, anyway, what I didn't get a chance to mention on the air, because there's only so many segments before, uh, only so many minutes before you have to hit a, a commercial, Kanye Way claimed this week that he can make as many anti-Semitic comments as he'd like, and Adidas, he's got a big deal with Adidas, would not be able to drop him from the company's campaigns. Uh, he said this the same day the Anti-Defamation League called on Adidas to drop his apparel line because of these recent and repeated anti-Semitic comments. Here's the quote from Ye. Uh, the thing about it being, Adidas is like, I can literally say anti-Semitic S and they cannot drop me. Now what? It's kind of daring them to do it. Really something. Now here's another uh, Kanye tidbit. Uh, turns out, according to the host of The Breakfast Club on a different podcast, that Kanye may be far angrier about his estranged wife, Kim Kardashian's relationship, or former relationship, because I think they've split now, with comedian Pete Davidson. Charlemagne the God. And the thing you should know is that Pete Davidson was not raised Jewish, but his father has a Jewish background. So you could maybe make a connection there. Uh, Charlemagne the God said that uh, when he told Kanye that Pete Davidson is his friend, the rapper got very angry. And he said to him, my wife is out here effing a white boy with a 10-inch penis and you won't help me. So could that be what a lot of this is about? All this, like, the Jewish people control the black boys and, you know, DEFCON 3 and all that. I don't know. It's come up before, apparently, as to Pete Davidson. And, well, you know what I'm getting at. And this is such a disappointment for those of us who wanted the sheer entertainment value of a Boris Johnson comeback. But late yesterday, our time, he dropped out. Bojo is not going to compete for his old job. He had it just six weeks ago. He said, I believe I have much to offer, but I am afraid this is simply not the right time. Translation, he didn't have enough votes. The way this works is you have to get at least 100 votes out of 357 Conservative Party members in the House of Commons to compete. Johnson said he did have that. The BBC said he didn't reach the 100-vote threshold. In any event, he said he had reached out to his competitors Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt, who is the uh, Tory leader in the House of Commons, trying to make a deal, but come together in the national interest, Bojo said. But sadly, we have not been able to work out a way for doing this. He said there was a very good chance that I would be successful in the election with Conservative Party members and that I could indeed be back in Downing Street on Friday. But he said, oh, this is just so sad. Uh, in the last days, I have sadly come to the conclusion that this simply would not be the right thing to do. You can't govern effectively unless you have a united party in parliament. Um, you know, when I first heard about this, I figured it was another maneuver. You know, he's playing hard to get. But no, basically, he doesn't have the votes. And what this means, if I can phone this in, is that Rishi Sunak will be 
the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom after Penny Mordaunt dropped out. This is historic in about 12 different ways. I mean, the whole thing unprecedented. Uh, first of all, he will be the first person of color to lead Great Britain. Also, the first person of Indian descent. Also, the first person who is a Hindu. And so, this is just stunning. He was the one who lost to Liz Truss in that runoff. And he's got his own baggage, including breaking some of the coronavirus rules. Uh, he also is, will be, this is really interesting, the wealthiest prime minister, I believe, in the history of the UK. Because his wife is the heir to some tech fortune. And that doesn't hurt in politics. Uh, but it's just the whole sequence of events here leading to the guy who barely lost to the woman who couldn't outlast a head of lettuce now will be taking over the Conservative Party and the Prime Ministership, this time having to go visit with King Charles. Okay, here, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is under fire after a man who claims to have coordinated his effort to fly migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, you remember all that, was revealed to be an illegal immigrant himself. The man, a Venezuelan national, said he was paid $700 to recruit people willing to board airplanes from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard. It is illegal to pay someone who is in the country illegally for work. That's explicitly banned in Florida. So Miami Herald reports that a 27-year-old named Emmanuel uh, took cash payments from a state contractor to help coordinate these flights. Uh, and this has to do with the question of, so if this guy took cash payments and Manuel himself is here illegally, what does that mean? Text messages reviewed by, reviewed by the Herald corroborate his account. Reporters for the Herald concluded Emanuel's reported role in the political effort uh, puts DeSantis at odds with his own views on migrant labor. It would appear to be a blemish on his record. I'd like to hear more about that. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. All right. Story number one. And here's where we get into Donald Trump. Washington Peace had a scoop over the weekend about the classified documents taken to Mar-a-Lago. Some of those documents, according to another leak to the Post, included highly sensitive intelligence regarding Iran and China, according to people familiar with the matter. If shared with other, these sources said, such information could expose intelligence-gathering methods that the United States wants to keep hidden from the world. Now, here's where it gets interesting. At least one of the documents seized by the FBI describes Iran's missile program, said somebody who spoke on condition of anonymity to describe an ongoing investigation, which says to me, probably somebody associated with the Department of Justice, therefore it shouldn't have been leaked. But when, this when the Post originally reported that there was nuclear secrets involved, involving a country that has nuclear secrets, I assumed, I don't know what I assumed actually, but that now appears to be Iran. And you could certainly see where 
former president having with him a what had to be a highly top secret piece of paper involving Iran's nuclear program where that would be considered highly sensitive. In fact, some of these classified documents about Iran and China, highly sensitive intelligence work aimed at China, are so sensitive that a lot of people who ordinarily have access, a lot of people in the federal government who ordinarily have access to this stuff don't have access to it. Now, after the article, the Washington Post article was published online, Post, uh, excuse me, Trump posted on social media. He decried what he called leaks on the document hoax. How exactly is it a hoax, folks? But the leaks, he's a fair game, suggesting that the FBI and National Archives were trying to frame him. Who could ever trust corrupt, weaponized agencies? And that includes NARA, National Archives and Record Association. Uh, not association, but agency. And who knows what NARA and the FBI plant into documents or subtract from documents? We'll never know, will we? Okay, the idea that the National Archives would plant stuff in documents, I'm sorry, is pretty far-fetched. All right, some related stuff here. Uh, Donald Trump called in to Brian Kilmeade's Fox radio show uh, on Friday. And I was a little surprised only because Kilmeade's been pretty tough on him and has called him out on occasion, uh, particularly what he has had to say about January 6th and what he's had to say about DOJ and so forth. So in that phone call, Trump said it would be, quote, very disloyal for any of members of his former administration to run against him in 2024. I can see where he says that because loyalty is probably at the top of the list of what Donald Trump cares about. Uh, so the question was, Mr. President, when will you decide if you're going to run in 2024? How would you handle running against people like Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence? And Trump says, well, many of them have said they would never run if I run. So we'll see whether or not that turns out to be true. I think it'd be very disloyal if they did. But that's okay, too. And the polls have me leading by 40, 50 points. So Kilmeade tried to get him to reveal his timetable. He said, not too distant future. Uh, elsewhere in this interview, Trump predicted a red wave in the midterm elections. Some other people are saying that too. And he predicted that Vladimir Putin could use nuclear weapons in the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Well, I don't think he'll stand for losing. So in some form, maybe limited form, uh, excuse me, Mr. Foreign President, but how about that would be a horrible thing if Vladimir Putin used nuclear weapons? That would might require a response from the United States of America. If Vladimir Putin used nuclear weapons, he just says it like, oh, this is an interesting observation. And um, I would have liked to, I, mean, I guess he doesn't like saying bad things about Putin, but if anything was going to cross a line, wouldn't it be using nuclear weapons in a completely brutal, unjustified, horrible, targeting civilians, as the Kremlin continues to do, use of nuclear weapons. I, even I am surprised by that. Okay. Uh, Bob Woodward has an essay in yesterday's Washington Post explaining why he is publishing an audiobook with about eight hours of the interviews he did 
with Donald Trump on the record tape recorded interviews recorded with Trump's permission. There were about 18 of these interviews uh, for his first book. By the second book, you know, Trump had denounced him and didn't like the book and all that. And that was wild. These were all conducted while Trump was president of the United States. Uh, I believe mostly in 2019. So Woodward's explaining himself, and he's got a lot of excerpts in here and some of the uh, voice excerpts from the the, uh, video, from the audios, excuse me. I have decided to take the unusual step, says Bob Woodward, of releasing them. I was struck by how Trump pounded in my ears in a way the printed page cannot capture. In their totality, these interviews offer an unvarnished portrait of Trump. You hear Trump in his own words, in his own voice, during one of the most consequential years in American history. Uh, and also during Trump's first impeachment, the coronavirus pandemic, and large racial justice profiles. Uh, Woodward goes on to say, sound has an extraordinary emotional power in immediacy and authenticity. That's why radio is popular. That's why television is popular. A listener is brought into the room. It is a completely different experience from reading Trump's words or listening to snatches of his interviews on television or the internet. I can only... And the last sentence of Woodward's book, and this, you know, Woodward doesn't usually come down. He reports and doesn't sort of take a stand. But he did in this book. And the last sentence said, I could only reach one conclusion. Trump is the wrong man for the job. Now, he says, two years later, I realized I didn't go far enough. Trump is an unparalleled danger. When you listen to him on the range of issues from foreign policy to the virus to racial injustice, it's clear he did not know what to do, says Woodward. Trump was overwhelmed by the job. He was largely disconnected from the needs and leadership expectations of the public, and his absolute self-focus became the presidency. Trump also revealed in the talk, uh, by the way, that he plans on suing Woodward. He called Woodward a very sleazy guy, and says he's hired a lawyer. Well, here's the problem I see with that. Trump gave Woodward permission to tape record these interviews as part of the -the on-the-record research for the Woodward book. So for him to now say he can't release the audio tapes when it's not like these were surreptitiously recorded and it's not like they weren't on the record. So, look, I mean, maybe he will. Trump threatens to sue a lot of people. But I don't see, frankly, where he has much of a case. Number two, we talked about this also on Media Buzz with Kevin Cork. It has to do with Jonathan Capehart, MSNBC weekend host, who got an exclusive interview, exclusive sit-down with President Biden, who, as you know, doesn't do many interviews. Now, I understand that this would have been seen as a kind of a friendly interview, But I've known Jonathan Capehart a long time. And as I said on the show, and as Kevin Cork said on the show, he's a very nice guy. Cork went on to say that one of the things that makes Capehart a good journalist is that he's willing to ask tough questions. But not only did we not see anything resembling a challenging question. I mean, my jaw dropped watching this thing. But Jonathan Capehart, the vast majority of this interview, um, 
except for the end where he was sort of uh, pressing Biden on when he would run and whether he'll run and what does his wife Jill say about this? And Biden was being very careful and Biden said, well, I can't really say, but let's just say she doesn't want me to walk away from the job by answering the question. Here's some of the things that Capehart said. We just played them back to back to back. Mr. President, I'll be honest, I'm scared. Millions of Americans are scared. They're concerned about the concerted attack on democracy, meaning by the Republicans. Can our democracy survive, asked Capehart, when the Republican Party is, it only cares about power? And, given what Leader McCarthy said, should he even be Speaker? Question after question after question was inviting President Biden to attack the Republicans or attack Donald Trump. I'm scared was showing that Capehart himself is in on this. Question after question after question after question. You know, he wasn't just saying I'm on the team. He was wanting Biden more so than the way that like, Mike make news, like your critics say, or whatever. It was just like, I, you know, how, why should Kevin McCarthy be allowed to be speaker? How can our democracy survive the Republican Party? And here's what's really telling. If there's a softball interview on Fox, you know, it gets called out by lots and lots of people. And that's fair. Not one so-called media critic. None. Zero. Zip. Nada. Even expressed any concern about an interview in which the entire thing was Jonathan Capehart, just about. Not only not asking a single challenging question, I thought there'd be a couple I kept waiting just, you know, for his own self-esteem. But, in you know, basically declaring himself to be on the Biden team, urging him, cajoling him, taking his side. What about the Republicans? What about the threat to democracy? And all of that. I thought it was embarrassing, but nobody in the so-called media criticism business blinked an eye. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number three is about the Republicans and how things are looking better in the polls and elsewhere in the midterms, beyond dispute. Big Washington Post headline yesterday, Democrats fear the midterm map is slipping away. Here's Peace and Politico kind of give you the flavor of where things stand. Uh, after spending the summer pounding Republican opponent Lee Zeldin, congressman running for governor of New York, Republican congressman, as anti-abortion, a Donald Trump acolyte, Governor Kathy Hochul, who of course succeeded Andrew Cuomo, is finding out what other Democrats across the nation are also learning. Crime and the economy are crowding out abortion rights and the former president's troubles as top-of-mind issues for voters. Uh, poll, one poll in particular showed a four-point race. That may, or may not be true. But New York governor responding with a last-minute shift in approach. What about this? Um, putting out a new ad. You deserve to feel safe. As your governor, I won't stop working until you do. Now, Zeldin... Congressman from Long Island holds almost daily press conferences outside subway stations in New York City to highlight violent crime. And he says Hochul's failure to address it certainly hasn't exactly been a focus of her campaign. Um, and the state Democratic chairman says these are things we're going to have to talk about 
to voters. Uh, I think they're important to voters. He can complain and bellyache. He does that very well. She produces. That's what it's all about. Now, you can argue about whether or not Kathy Hochul has taken significant steps on crime. Certainly, the, the New York subways have always, in my view, been rather unsafe. But it's not been her focus. So in the, one of the bluest of blue states, if Kathy Hochul is now talking about crime, and look, the biggest part of the vote in New York State is New York City. And lots of people are worried about crime there. Whether it's been going up a lot or somewhat, doesn't matter. People care about that and the economy. Uh, as this uh, political piece points out, it was a tough-on-crime message that not only carried Rudy Giuliani, who was, a, of course, a former prosecutor, to win the New York City's mayor race in 1993, but Eric Adams, a former NYPD captain, to City Hall last year. So you would think Democrats would get the message that this is kind of important. All right, number four. So the New York Times, and this is really something, has this big piece about trying to prove that Republicans are using much more inflammatory language than Democrats, uh, especially on social media or statements and so forth. So the lead example is Mary Miller, who's a Republican member of Congress from Illinois. She's routinely vilified Democrats and liberals, calling them evil communists beholden to China who want to destroy America and its culture. President Biden's plan, she said, is to flood our country with terrorists, fentanyl, uh, child traffickers, and MS-13 gang members. Her inflammatory words underscore the extent to which polarizing rhetoric is now entrenched among Republicans in the House, especially those like uh, Congresswoman Miller, who voted against certifying the Biden victory. According to an examination by the Times of partisan language over 10 years, this analysis of tweets, Facebook ads, newsletters, and congressional speeches, more than 3.5 million items in all, relied largely on natural language processing. Um, the, the Times tallied words were linked in academic research to divisive political content. Words like fascist and socialist. Look, I would argue socialist is fair game in a political campaign because, you know, Bernie Sanders was a democratic socialist. AOC has said she's kind of a socialist. Also far right and far left. Okay. So Republican representatives have ratcheted out such rhetoric since Trump took office. Republicans on average use divisive words and phrases more than twice as often as Democrats in tweets and six times as often in emails to constituents. Now, the Times also examined Democrats. In the first years of the Trump presidency, Democrats on average spoke in a more outraged way than Republicans on Twitter and in constituent emails. Few Democrats were among those, uh, Bill Pascrell of New Jersey, uh, among lawmakers who most frequently use demonizing speech on Twitter. But now, Republicans have eclipsed Democrats. Well, here's the problem I have with this. If Democrats are saying things like, Republicans or MAGA Republicans represent a threat to democracy, that Republicans are engaging in the big lie, that Donald Trump is a danger to democracy. Um, the Times may look at all that and say, well, that's not inflammatory language. That's true. Well, 
I'm not here to argue whether it's true or false. I am here to say that if you hold one side accountable for words like fascism and other inflammatory stuff, and yet you give the other party a pass because big lie, January 6th, inciting violence, danger to democracy, and all of that, you're kind of giving a free pass to the Democratic Party because in the worldview of the New York Times, it's okay to say that stuff. Why? Because the Times deems it to be okay because the Times deems it all to be true. Now, I'm not sitting here saying that some Republicans who tried to block the certification, who are still denying the 2020 election was fair, you know, that they shouldn't be held to account. But I do think there's a little bit of confirmation bias in this story. Number five is a deep dive on TikTok. And this is pretty interesting stuff. Washington Post. Taylor Lorenz is the co-author of the piece. Leads off by saying when Huna Feili if I'm pronouncing that correctly, started making money on TikTok. Uh, The 21-year-old gaming fan in London made it the centerpiece of her life. She devoted every night and weekend to making videos. She optimized her room in eye-catching pink. I confess I haven't thought to do that. She hired a management team to handle her video branding deals and bookkeeping, even though she still lived at home. Now as the 9 million follower Nintendo.girl, G-R-L, She is one of the app's biggest successes, and she feels like she's achieved a creative dream. But competing for attention, she said, can also feel like working a shift that doesn't end. And winning it can feel even worse, since her most viral videos also bring out the heaviest floods of hateful insults and sexist trolls. She's woken up in the middle of the night to check her phone, and after some videos, has refused to sleep, feeling too anxious about her response. Um, this is the power that TikTok has, this woman says. It's just so, so popular, and that can be a scary thing. You have to be constantly fighting against other content creators to be seen. She goes on to say, you don't realize the impact of having so many eyes on you. Those people who've chosen not to like you, they're going to see you right there on their screen, and nothing you do is going to make a difference. You've got to learn to deal with the hate. Well, it sounds to me like every other social media site, but I guess TikTok, in some people's imagination, was supposed to be different. Uh, And the piece says, look, TikTok, with its just super addictive algorithms, it's always feeding you, feeding you, feeding you stuff, you don't have to do anything that it determines that you like, has become the world's biggest gatekeeper for online fame. And that has helped supercharge an internet reality. One great moment can be the difference between a celebrity and a nobody. And who among us wants to be a nobody? The app's promise is especially attractive to the millions of young people aspiring to a life or career as an online influencer. What if anybody can be a star? But in this new era of instant, inexplicable attention, it's come as a price. Interviews of more than three dozen TikTok creators Many noted the app's reach brings with it relentless demands from angry commenters, from audience expectations, even from the algorithm itself. TikTok is designed for entertainment. No one's guaranteed a receptive audience. But 
In this culture of fast-twitch reactions and fleeting fame, says this Washington Post piece, it's left many creators feeling overwhelmed by dashed-off insults or mean-spirited critiques. Imagine mean-spirited critiques online. Getting big too quickly has often meant their videos would be seen by viewers who hated what they said, how they looked, or who they were. And there's lots of ways to tear them down. So some, they say, have received death threats for supporting an abortion, making cheesy videos, or selling expensive chocolate bars. Well, that pretty much ranges the gamut, right? Uh, Here's uh, a guy, Josh Helfgott, who posts about LGBTQ issues to his more than 5 million followers. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of followers. And there are people with far, far more on TikTok. Uh, he says people often post quick reactions to others' videos you, using features like Duet and Stitch, I guess if you're more familiar with TikTok than I am, you know what that means, that leverage the original vi- video's virality to amplify their insults in what he called a new form of bullying. The harsher you are in the original video, the more views you're going to get. Uh, it goes on to say, look, harassment or bullying, internet-wide issue. Uh, tell me about it. And TikTok says, for its part, it's working to strengthen its creator protections, including by allowing people to automatically block offensive comments. Guess they can't do that now. The company said last month it removed more than 100 million videos between April and June for harassment, hateful behavior, and other concerns. Uh, that sounds pretty impressive until you see that's roughly 1% of the 11 billion videos. These are staggering numbers, folks that were posted in those months. Here's another example. Maribel Martinez, 24-year-old mother in Florida, went viral on TikTok after dressing up as uh, Louisa from a Disney movie, gaining 2 million followers within three months. Not a lot of places you can do that. You build this audience that tends to be more like a second family, she says, and your followers really go in for you. They defend you, but the hate we get, the rumors... The lies that get told about us, it can spread like wildfire. Well, I guess TikTok is joining the rest of the world, but I think TikTok probably needs to do more. I also think if you're going to post on controversial subjects like abortion or LGBTQ issues, I'm not saying they should be controversial, but to a lot of people they are, you got to expect that people are going to hit back. I think maybe it's more culture shock than anything else. But these people, I guess, don't have the tools to defend against bullying. And beyond that, um, it's sad given, you know, how instantly you can can become a star, how much blowback you can get by people who just decide they hate you. Now, again, they may hate you for political reasons, in which case, suck it up. But if they hate you for posting for the way you look or posting too much about chocolate or whatever it is, I guess there's no escape. The internet, to some degree, cesspool that it can be, also a wonderful thing that it can be, has caught up with TikTok. Appreciate your listening as always. Once again, hope you had a great weekend. Glad we could share this time together. And guess what? I'll be back here tomorrow with more Buzzbeat. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.